Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Welcome to this week's episode of Words Matter. Today we are joined by Joe Lockhart. Joe was the 19th White House press secretary under President Bill Clinton from 1998 to 2000. He is also the former senior vice president of the National Football League and today is an entrepreneur, businessman, and CNN political commentator. Also joining me today is my co-host, Adam Levine. Joe, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Joe, last week you sat down across the table from Ken Starr. Was that the first time you had met after 20 years? And what was it like to sit face to face with him? It's the first time we've met person to person. I think we've talked at each other over television uh, over the <laughs> years. But uh, it's the first time I had a chance to see him, um, uh, you know, face to face. You know, it was intense. You know, these are issues that I think both of us feel very strongly about. Most of the time, uh, I don't want to think about these anymore. But it's very important to me, I think, to inject some reality into the narrative that Judge Starr has um, put out there over the last 20 years. Uh, it's it's inaccurate. Um, uh, it's unfair. Uh, and I saw this as an opportunity to, to do that. How was it unfair and inaccurate? You know, listen, I think what the president did was wrong. I think anyone who worked there uh, uh, believed it was wrong. I think the country thought it was wrong. The reaction, though, from the independent council, council was way out of proportion. Uh, this was, you know, many years of looking into um, – looking to find something, pressuring a, a young woman, um, uh, Monica Lewinsky, uh, threatening her with 27 years in jail uh, to – uh, give evidence uh, on the president. And I think this all could have been done in a way that was much more appropriate. If you look at his report, it was gratuitous. It was graphic. It added nothing to the constitutional import of how we do this. And I think he diminished the entire process. And you don't have to listen to just me. In a rare moment of bipartisan agreement in Washington, and those are rare, when Starr was done, Democrats and Republicans got together and said, let's get rid of this independent counsel. He so abused the, his, his authority, they let it lapse. So, you know, the independent counsel, as we knew it, died, uh, you know, and on that headstone is, is Ken Starr's name. And Joe, to your point, I, I, you were in the White House. I, I was covering it as a young producer at NBC News. And one of the things that I was struck by in your exchange with Ken Starr was he seemed to be quite upset when you suggested leaking from his office. And one of the things I'd like you to talk about is explain to people the differences between the press posture of that independent counsel investigation and the current uh, special prosecutor under Robert Mueller. Yeah. So let me start with Mueller because that's easy, which is it's a it's a vault. Uh, nothing comes out of uh, Mueller's office. You know, it's for people old enough to remember the Maytag repairman, that's what his spokesman's job is. He doesn't have much to do. 
Uh, he only speaks in filings. He only speaks in filings that are heavily redacted. Uh, he's not interested in day-to-day press coverage. He's also not interested in defending himself from attacks. In talking to Starr, um, he seemed very interested in the idea that when I'm attacked, I have to push back. Uh, he seemed very political uh, in, in in that way. And that's not what a prosecutor is supposed to do. Uh, and remember, um, he was appointed um, by a conservative group of judges to in- conduct an investigation, and he'd never been a prosecutor. He'd never run an investigation. So I think that alone was a problem. The fact of the matter is um, the prosecutor's office did leak. Um, you know, we did have joint defense agreements with a number of people. So there were things that we'd read in the paper that we already knew about. But there was lots of stuff we read in the paper that we didn't know about that was talked about in the grand jury. From my understanding, the head leaker in the office was Brett Kavanaugh. You all remember who Brett Kavanaugh is now. We know two things about him. Uh, he's on the Supreme Court and he likes beer. And, we, you know, we, we knew this at the time. And it struck me at the time that their strategy was simple. They were going to leak as much as they could to try to create enough political pressure to force the president to resign. Uh, as opposed to go through an impeachment process. Uh, They um, misunderstood the public. They certainly misunderstood the president, who had no intention uh, of resigning. But it was wrong. I I think it was illegal. Uh, And I'll go a little bit further, as I think Judge Kavanaugh perjured himself in front of Congress uh, in in arguing that he didn't um, uh, leak. My guess is he never picked up the phone and called a reporter and said, here's grand jury testimony. But he told people that he knew talked to well, reporters. Absolutely. And to your point, Joe, when I was at NBC during this period, even 20 years later, we're not supposed to reveal our sources. Uh, statute of limitations can pass, but there's, there's none on that. But I will say, to your exact point, Brett Kavanaugh was well known in Washington by lots of journalists well before he ever became a judge. And that office did, and it's been reported, would tee up television programs, newspapers, anybody who they believed was favorable to them or giving them the kind of coverage, you would get some source either, like you said, affiliated with the office themselves or from somebody inside who would provide information on a daily basis. So I think that's one of the differences. Yeah, and I think you just contrast that again, going back to the original question with what Bob Mueller's done. It it couldn't be more different. Um, They've made one or two uh, public statements. You know, I I had one incident where someone leaked something to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, The Wall Street Journal gave me a couple hours to try to run it down. I ran it down and it turned out to not be true. Uh, And this was a leak from one of the, the, the Kavanaugh group. I went back to the journal and the journal um, said, well, we've got a problem. We were afraid we we're going to get beat on this story. So uh, we've already put it on the Dow Jones Newswire. And, you know, I, I escalated to the editor and they said, well, we'll put out a correction. And I, and I said, not good enough. You've put this into the bloodstream. Uh, so the next morning, and I don't know if this has ever happened anytime, anywhere, the Wall Street Journal on the front page ran a retraction of a story that never appeared in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, because the story was wrong and they were responsible for it. And my job was to hold them responsible for that. That's interesting to compare that situation to what has come up um, recently. To your point, uh, Mueller's 
Mueller has not spoken publicly and he does so through filings uh, and has rarely commented, although there was the BuzzFeed story that President Trump directed individuals to lie and very rarely the special counsel's office put out a statement saying we don't have evidence to that effect. So that's just an interesting comparison to your experience. Yeah. I mean, again, um, in my experience, there would have been a driveway press conference as as, uh, Judge Starr was taking his garbage out. I think that's a really interesting thing because the way BuzzFeed wrote it, they wrote it too hard. They got a piece of nuanced information and they made too much of it. What we have now subsequently found out through Cohen's testimony is that Cohen believed the president wanted him to lie because he said, I've been with him for a decade. I know how he speaks. He gave this whole exposition like a mob boss saying, you know, I, you know what to do, right? Yeah, you know what to do. I know what to do. You know what to do. I never told you to do it. It's, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's out of a Martin Scorsese movie. Um, so I think that I, th- I think Mueller was right and his office was right because it it gave it was an, it, it left an unfair impression to the president and it needed a broader conversation. Uh, the problem for Mueller was I ain't having the conversation right now. I'll have it when I'm ready to have it. I think in the end, when this all comes out uh, and everything comes out in the wash, you'll find that BuzzFeed was about 95 percent right. Uh, but, you know, in journalism, that last 5 percent matters a lot. And, Joe, to your comments about Ken Starr talking to reporters as he was taking out his garbage, Joe is often funny, but you weren't kidding with that one. This was a – every morning there was a stakeout at Ken Starr's house. He would come out with his garbage in hand, briefcase in the other hand, and he would brief reporters in this manner. And that was – you know, we didn't have Twitter back then. So this was the tweet of the day. <laughs> yeah, and, and I don't I don't know about you, but I don't take my garbage out every day, and I don't know. I, Ken Starr <laughs> found he found some garbage someplace it in the house a little to light take out every day. Yeah, it, I will say so, that. You, know, you, you wake up in the morning and see something in the New York Times or the Washington Post, and you know whether there was garbage or not, he found something to put in that bag. There you <laughs> yeah. go, strategic strategic trashing. So I'm glad that Adam asked that question, comparing the independent counsel to today's special counsel, because that sets us up for exactly what we want to do today. And I'm so glad both of you are here. Joe, with your experience from a Democratic White House under President Clinton, Adam, with your experience in a Republican White House under President Bush, both of whom were under investigation at different points in time. We want to talk to both of you and help our listeners figure out how we got here and where we're going and what that process is. So to do that, I want to jump in on a story from Axios that just came out. Journalists Mike Allen and Jim Vandehei wrote uh, a lengthy article. The title of it was The Biggest Political Scandal in American History. And here's what they said. Even without seeing Robert Mueller's report or knowing what prosecutors with the Southern District of New York have unearthed or what congressional investigators will find, we already have witnessed the biggest political scandal in American history. So, Joe, explain who Mike Allen and Jim Vandehei are and why this article had an impact. Well, you know, Mike and uh, and Jim, I think, are you know, in that small group of reporters that really can uh, move opinion in Washington, insiders, you know, it's, uh, you know, Mike and Jim were both reporters in D.C. They 
started uh, along with John Harris Politico, which is very inside, and then they decided they wanted to do something a little different uh, and started Axios. So long way of saying they're very influential and, and very knowledgeable because uh, in Washington, there's a lot of influential people who aren't necessarily knowledgeable, <laughs> uh, but I, I digress. I, I think they – and I don't always agree with uh, Mikey and Van de Hei, but I think they hit, hit the nail on the head in this story because – and we don't know everything yet. They they went through a number of scandals and showed that each of these things, while important, were narrow. So, for example, Watergate, one of the biggest political scandals that anyone's ever seen, the president being involved in breaking into the, uh, the headquarters of the DNC, covering it up. This was a story that only involved domestic politics. You know, the Teapot Dome scandal only involved uh, domestic politics. Iran-Contra involved foreign policy during the Reagan administration, but it didn't go to trying to overturn an election. It, it looked – it was trying to get around a law, something called the Boland Amendment. And yes, big scandal. This one has everything. This has the president directly involved in criminal behavior with the Stormy Daniels hush money payment. This one has a national security advisor having to resign because lying about his Russia connections. And as Mikey and Jim point out, that's unprecedented. You have Russian interference in our election, unprecedented. And you have the potential collusion between the Trump campaign, the Trump family, uh, and Russia. And to make it worse, you have U.S. policy towards Russia that appears on the face of it to have been influenced by the uh, president's – whatever the president owed to Vladimir Putin, whether it was Trump uh, Hotel in Moscow or whether it was the, the WikiLeaks dump, whatever. You, you, have, you have everything here. Uh, you have you – know, I, you know, I, I told someone earlier today in coming back to Ken Starr because people want to compare uh, the Clinton impeachment with Trump. With President Clinton, he betrayed his wife. With President Trump, he betrayed his wife and it looks like he betrayed his country. And that's what makes it the biggest scandal in American history. I can't disagree in terms of if everything that's out there is true. I think one of the things that struck me and as, as Joe very correctly says, these are two reporters and two journalists who move opinion in Washington. They're not necessarily known as being on the fringe of anything. We as a Republican White House got – what one would call favorable coverage or at least fair coverage from both of them. And so when they make a statement like that and they and they write an article like that, as Joe said, I think it carries a lot of weight. I worry a little bit about setting expectations and about the difference between what we know, what we think, what's out there, and then what eventually makes its way into a report from uh, Bob Mueller, an impeachment proceeding in the House. I think that for a lot of people, that the, the evidence is already out there. I see it, but I just worry that this, they're setting expectations in a way that allows Donald Trump to spin his way out of this. Can I go to the expectations? Because there's probably no more important game in Washington than that expectation setting. And falling below them and exceeding them is often what determines the winners and losers as opposed to what happened. Uh, nothing you can do about that. And I get the idea that Democrats have been out there 
uh, and making a lot of collusion. Um, and there may not be a smoking gun. And counterintelligence um, investigations are very difficult. They're not designed to find a crime. They're designed to protect the country. I know all of that. But I've been struck over the last week or so uh, by the opposite, which is Republicans coming out and saying, we now know there's nothing. We now know there's nothing. It's a witch hunt. It's a winch hunt. And they are so lowering expectations on what uh, Mueller uh, may come out with. I think that we may have the opposite problem. It might not be the smoking gun we thought that everyone thought six months ago that it might be. But you've got a lot of Republicans right now who are declaring the president innocent. And I can't imagine him getting a clean bill of slate um, there again may not be you know we found the phone call between Putin and uh, Trump but you're, it's gonna, there are going to be a lot of interesting things in there and I think the Republicans are making a big mistake I, I if I were advising them and thank God uh, for them I'm not I would be doing just the opposite I'd be I'd be saying we're really nervous about this you know who knows what they could have manufactured. And, you know, we're worried about the collusion. They're doing just the opposite. And I think it's a mistake. Again, to your point, Joe, back um, during the Clinton impeachment, Democratic senators like Joe Lieberman, like the senator I worked for, Pat Moynihan, by being tough at the beginning when they eventually didn't vote for removal, they carried a lot more weight with the voters and with the press than they would if they had had – if they had said all along, nothing here, nothing here, nothing here. Yeah, and a big difference between whatever comes out in this report – a big difference between 20 years ago and today is when when Starr issued his report, except for some of the more graphic details, none of it was new. None of it was new. We had a very vigorous internal discussion. Um, you might even call it a fight between the political people and the legal people that generally got along very well over this issue of should we try to preempt the report or at least have our own report ready the day of the star report. The lawyers very intelligently made the case that you don't want to be fighting a ghost. You don't want to be saying we didn't do this, this and this and then have the independent counsel not say you did it. I think uh, some of the political people felt like, you know, it's a risk that we have to take. Unfortunately, fortunately, about 24 hours before Starr's report was to be released, we came to an agreement and I think the, 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 the legal side saw the wisdom in what we were arguing. And they had, because they were very good lawyers, they had prepared most of this anyway, so it was very easy for them. But they turned to uh, Paul Begala and myself and said, we, we need a first chapter. We need a political statement. And, you know, we looked at each other and said, well, when are we going to do that? And they said, well, you've got all night. And it took all night. But um, mostly me standing over Paul, who is a brilliant thinker, writer, arguer, debater. And we put together a, a rebuttal that on the day was very effective, not because it was a brilliant piece of writing or a brilliant piece of legal analysis. Um, it certainly I think it was on the legal analysis side, but it was new. What no one had seen over six months of leaks was the exculpatory information because that was held back. When Bob Mueller goes with his report, the opposite is true. The president has made every political argument you can make of why he's innocent. This is all a witch hunt. 
any kind of exculpatory information has all been put out there. What's new, and we all know that what's new is what's news, will be what just what does Mueller have? Uh, so the situations couldn't be more different. At bottom, what we're talking about here is foreign influence on our elections. And I want to ask you as somebody who was in the Clinton White House, what do you say to people who recently – there was, I believe, an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal – compare Russia to uh, Clinton and China and talk about the prosecutions that took place related to campaign finance in the 1996 election and the FBI director at the time who was appointed by Clinton, um, Louis Free, called for an independent counsel. The attorney general at the time, Janet Reno, said no. Uh, what do you say to those people who try to make that comparison? How is it different? It's pretty weak, but I w- here's what I will say. There was a year of hearings on Capitol Hill about this, and they found excesses, and they found some money. Uh, they particularly found one fundraiser who was taking money that he shouldn't have. Uh, there was no evidence that the president knew about this. There was no evidence that the policy was uh, impacted. It would be pretty hard for the policy to be impacted if the president didn't know about it or the national security advisor uh, didn't know about it. The Clinton um, uh, Gore reelection uh, campaign was very aggressive in raising money and then some corners did get cut and they got exposed uh, in the right place in front of congressional hearings. And at the end of the day, there was no reason to believe there was criminal behavior, certainly on behalf, you know, on, you know, on behalf of the president. Uh, I understand, you know, the the current ethos of politics is, particularly the Republicans, is whataboutism. So you say you did this and they'll find something. This is pretty weak shit as far as I'm concerned. What's interesting is President Clinton also at the time said and encouraged a rigorous investigation into those allegations. And, and I think that's the point. I think that a lot of the ways that the Clinton White House handled a lot of the investigations – some of those differences that Joe points out absolutely were in play there, and that's one of them. Yeah, there's a big it's, – it's an important point to highlight. The president had – and the, the, our, our White House had a strategy that said that as soon as we portray ourselves as a victim, as soon as we portray ourselves as people who are so distracted by these investigations, we've lost the public. So we were – and the president was incredibly disciplined uh, on this of not talking about it. Not making himself the victim, not throwing things around like witch hunt and politically motivated. And by the way, that was a guy who wasn't necessarily known to be the most disciplined guy. No, and I can tell you, um, as you may know, you often practice answers before you go out and talk to the press. Um, his first answer to all of these ones were not quite as disciplined <laughs> and were not quite as useful and helpful. And I think my favorite phrase with him was, Mr. President, that's a really interesting answer. But have you thought about answering it this way? (laughs) And he has the steam having been released from between his ears. He'd say, yes, I see your point. Um, Maybe I'll try that. So you both served in White Houses under congressional scrutiny and criminal investigation. Uh, I want to ask you, and Joe, let's start with you. What is life like at 1600 Penn when the subpoenas and document requests from committee chairs start arriving? Uh, it's an enormous pain in the ass um, <laughs> because it requires you to take time to uh, – because you get these very general things where it will come and say, you know, um, please provide any relevant documents on Whitewater or on – you know, we had Travelgate and Filegate and let's not 
even waste the time to describe for how ridiculous those were and what they were about. And for me, I developed a very effective policy that, that may have impacted um, my ability to do my job a little bit, but I did it anyway, which is I kept no files. There was not a single file cabinet really? in my office. I didn't keep any paper at the end of the day. I took stuff, no notes either. Stuff went into yeah. the garbage or if it was classified, it went into the burn bag. So whenever I got one of these, I immediately checked, I have no records. And for context, you know, email was not ubiquitous then. And we were just starting to um, use email. But for anything that was sensitive, we talked to each other on the phone. And those, you know, it was easy to say, you know, I don't, you know, they weren't asking you, do you have a recollection of your phone call? They were saying, do you have a record? Um, so the second point I'd make is, and, um, you know, Adam may have some perspective, and I just don't know uh, about this White House. What made the White House work as well as it did during these years was there was the the building was compartmentalized. There were roughly, I want to say, less than a dozen people working in the White House who were working on these issues. Uh, some lawyers, um, a couple of political people, a couple of communicators. Everybody else was told in no uncertain terms, stay away. Don't try to be in the meetings. Don't try to comment on it. Do your job. That's where Bill Belichick got it, by the way, doing the job <laughs> exactly. from the Clinton White House. That'll kill him if he if, that, if he if he hears that. He's he's not a fan. But uh, these things can consume um, a campaign or a White House and shut everything down. And the thing that I tell everybody, in you know, when I'm out talking to whether they be business leaders or political leaders, is you know, getting through the getting through a scandal. And having your business atrophy um, or your campaign atrophy, what's the point of getting through the scandal? You got to be able to do both. No, I think that's right. And and one of the things, Joe, I found is that there were people who you and I would work with in the White House. And when it got ratcheted up from the more general document request, I think my first one was 10 days in uh, something called Enron. And you get the, the more serious letters. You get you know invitations to appear and uh, answer questions. What you do in the White House is you stop talking to your colleagues about that and only speak to appropriate counsel. I mean to this day, Dan Bartlett and I who had anywhere as the grand juries that I testified in front of know from five to 25 phone conversations or meetings a day, to this day we've never spoken about the CIA leak investigation once it was a criminal referral from the Justice Department to a special prosecutor. Yeah, and I think that you can draw a – a stark contrast because not only is the the talk loose in the White House, the president's sharing it with the public. I'll, let me let me give you an example of 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 this. Um, as luck would have it, and I use I'm being sarcastic when I say luck. The day the Monica Lewinsky story broke, we were doing that was our day to promote the State of the Union, which was the next week. We had three television interviews, two television interviews, and a print interview scheduled and. We put our heads together and decided it would look uh, too defensive if we, if we canceled them and we just figured out – we got to figure out a way to get through these interviews. And you know, the funny thing was one of my jobs – and at the time I was the deputy press secretary the day this story broke. One of my jobs was when it came to prepping the president for a press conference, everybody in the White House thought they were essential and you can't fit 600 people in the Oval Office. So Mike McCurry, who was my boss, used to station me at the door 
and have me be the bouncer. You know, and it's, you know, at times you're telling like cabinet members you can't come in, but you know, um, I did my job. The day the story broke, we had a meeting in the the prep was going to be in the dining room adjacent to the Oval Office, and I arrived and there was nobody there, and I kind of looked around and the president walked in. It was just actually Chuck Ruff, the White House Counsel, was there, and it was just the two of us. And I started to talk to Chuck and I said, you know, well, here's what we're going to need to know. And he looked at me and he gave me very stern advice. And he said, the moment you become a fact finder, the moment you start asking the president of the United States, well, what were you thinking here? And what do you think? He said, you're going to end up in the grand jury and you're going to have a huge legal bill. Don't ask him. That's my job as the White House counsel. That's David Kendall's job as his personal attorney. And eventually the president came and we were sort of sitting and, you know, uh, then then Mike came and the three of us sat, put our heads together and figured out a strategy for the interview. And oddly, I didn't have to do my job as a bouncer because those 600 people who oh, wanted right. to come into the didn't meeting, want to come in for they them. all had no. something didn't. really pressing that day and, you know, thought, oh, I can't make the prep with the president. Didn't want that legal bill. It sounds like you both had good lawyers, at least. Uh, so one of the first requests that Congress made following Michael Cohen's testimony was by Oversight Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings in the circumstances surrounding Jared Kushner's security clearance. Last week, several news organizations reported that President Trump had directed individuals, including then Chief of Staff John Kelly, to grant both his son-in-law and his daughter Ivanka top security clearances. And last week, the White House said no. I want to quote a letter to Chairman Cummings from White House counsel Pat Cipollone in response. The committee has failed to point to any authority establishing a legitimate legislative purpose for the committee's unprecedented and extraordinarily intrusive demands, including the demand to examine the entire investigative files of numerous individuals whom the president has chosen as his senior advisors. Both of you having experienced uh, at least adjacent circumstances, how unusual is it for the White House to say no in a case like this? Joe, I'll defer to you first. Yes. It, it is not unusual for any White House to start with no. Uh, I think in almost any of these things, there's a little bit of a, a, a legal tug of war. Um, and the first letter is never the last letter. So I expect there's going to be some back and forth here. I understand that some of the information has made its way up to the Hill anyway without the cooperation of the White House. But I think at the end of the day, they will have to reach some uh, accommodation uh, because you can't stonewall uh, the Hill forever. Uh, I think m much more interesting, though, because there's so many facets to this, is this fight. It, this is unprecedented. There's no record or no recollection, no one in the intelligence community, in the law enforcement community, in the political community can remember a time when the president overrode the experts and said, you must give them the, this. And it raises a lot of issues um, and in no particular order. Just what's in Jared Kushner and Ivanka's background that makes them unfit to see secrets? For God's sakes, they gave me security clearance. I mean, they let me look at everything. Mine took 18 and, months. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's uh, – so what is it there? The second is – and it, it highlights just what the hell are they doing allowing the family to run the country? I, this, this is not 
you know, some autocracy someplace, um, and it's not a mob family where you know, uh, you know, if you're not Sicilian, you don't, you know, you you can't be a made person. You know, we we don't have made people in in our government, and they, I think, Congressman Cummings has every right uh, to get to the bottom of this, and you know, I I think it will it's it. It it may very well be kind of the tip of the spear that opens up what Jared has been up to. Uh, he travels around the world. He has business around the world. He's cozied up to dictators around the world. His family's major project uh, here in New York was bailed out by a foreign sovereign wealth fund. What are these guys up to? I think, you know, uh, oversight is what tells us that. Uh, and I think that's why you find the White House and the president uh, so um, so upset about this. Well, you know, one of the things we've also learned uh, recently is that when the president wants something, even when his White House counsel says no and his chief of staff says no, he gets it. In this particular case, John Kelly and Don McGahn told the president, you can't do this. And the president said, do it anyway. Uh, we're going to get to the bottom of this. President Trump is known for busting through norms and is, in fact, something that he prides himself on, I think. What are the consequences of this particular norm? What do you think comes from this? Well, look, I mean, I think Joe said it right. Most White Houses, when they start this, regardless of the situation, to preserve you know, what they call executive power, uh, Andy Card, our chief of staff uh, for uh, the first six years of, of President Bush's term, would say that his job was to protect the president and the presidency and Vice President Cheney felt very strongly as that. But as Joe points out, it's somewhat of a charade because a lot of this is settled law. A lot of it is both practice and when it's been litigated, those who have tried to keep information from Congress have lost. And I remember several instances in Joe's White House where whether it was a congressional issue or even a special counsel issue, independent counsel issue. The Clinton White House didn't appeal all the way to the Supreme Court for fear that they might lose on the particular facts of that case and thus weaken the presidency going forward. Um, there was a level of restraint. To your question about the consequences, it can only weaken the presidency if you go up against Congress and consistently lose, which my guess and I think Joe would probably agree is that they're not going to win that fight. Chairman Cummings is going to get that one way or the other um, in one form or another. He's going to see that information. So it's a bad precedent for the office in addition to the current occupant. And it's it's you know a dirty little secret about DC and news and probably human nature. Uh, when someone tries to hide something, it's way more interesting when you find out because they've been trying to hide it. That's certainly a lesson in law school as well. <laughs> in a separate action following Michael Cohen's testimony. House Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler sent out 81 document request letters to individuals and entities associated with President Trump. Is this the first step on the path to impeachment? I think it's the first step in the uh, path towards aggressive oversight. Whether it gets to impeachment or not, we can't answer yet. And I think, you know, Nadler did this in a very smart way. The 81 people who and organizations that he uh, made a document request of have already turned over this information to some judicial authority. So all he's saying is we want to catch up. And, he, and in doing that, he's made the point that for two years, no one's, mind, no one's been minding the store. 
Uh, so it is uh, aggressive oversight. There is, there, you know, there are political questions, which I'm glad to talk about, about whether the Democrats should impeach or shouldn't. But this was a smart first step in framing, here's what we're going to look at. And I think from the Trump family perspective, the reason that they are setting their hair on fire is he trampled over the red line. He said, I'm going to look into your business. I'm going to look to see how that relates to some of these broader issues. And that's very dangerous for the Trumps. The most recent scandals involving House impeachment proceedings occurred leading up to midterm elections. We are in a different stance here going into 2020. What are the political implications that are involved in an impeachment proceeding leading up to a presidential election? Impeachment itself is a high stakes game. It's an incredibly high stakes game uh, if you're looking at a president, you know, looking to get reelected. Uh, and I think uh, everyone in Washington is aware of that. I'll take it from the Democratic um, uh, side. I think impeachment is politically a a risky and probably a bad move. I'm speaking purely politically here. Uh, you want to investigate. You want to expose. But if you know that once this gets to the Senate, the president is going to be acquitted, you have to ask the question that what have you accomplished accomplish politically? And if you just investigate and put this out to the voters over the next 12 to 14 months, you've given voters a chance to decide uh, at the ballot box whether this president should be in the Oval Office. That's one piece of it. The second piece of it, and it's the only reasons why the reason why the Democrats should have pause here, is this president, in my view, is a clear and present danger to this country. You know, you look at what happened in North Korea, an ill-conceived summit that could have resulted in a terrible deal, uh, but certainly gave away the store um, uh, to Chairman Kim. And in return, we got we got nothing. Uh, his um, profile as a world leader was uh, these uh, uh, major military exercises with South Korea are now off. And I don't know that Air Force One had touched down at Andrews before they continued expanding their nuclear program. It's hard to see a guy that, you know, just a year ago was derided as little rocket man, you know, taking Trump to the cleaners. I worry desperately about a world crisis where real leadership is needed. I worry about, you know, what would have happened in 2008, 2009 with the world financial crisis if George Bush and Barack Obama had not been president. You know, what would have happened in the aftermath of Oklahoma City if Bill Clinton was not president? What would have happened with the uh, Mexican peso crisis? The whole world economy could have collapsed. And remember, I mean, people don't remember the Mexico peso crisis. 82% of the country said, don't bail out Mexico. But we knew that if we didn't bail out Mexico, it would become contagious uh, and spread to us and cost our economy dearly. Uh, so we, you know, we did it anyway. I don't know that this president either has the understanding of any of these issues, but he certainly doesn't have the motivation, in my view, to to do the right things, to make the tough choices. And I think Democrats will be left holding the bag if, for political reasons, they choose to go slow and investigate and not put impeachment on the table. If something tragic happens, and look, Joe, I mean, I I couldn't agree more in the sense of pure politically. It's a risk for the Democrats. You know, 
Katie uh, correctly pointed out, first time during a presidential election. It's also both of those presidents were second-term presidents at the time. They were already moving into lame duck status. You now have a president who is a first-term president, who's running for re-election, who has a base that is incredibly loyal. And Joe knows better than anybody. In 1998, the Republicans overreached, beginning the impeachment proceedings against Bill Clinton, leading up to a midterm, caused them to lose seats. And Joe will know the numbers better than I do for the first time in however many years. Well, just off the top of my head, we gained five seats and it was the first time in 150 years. But that's just <laughs> off the top of my head. And that's the miscalculation that Joe's talking about. Now, social psychologically, if you're talking that way, if you're talking for the ceremony that this is supposed to be, I think it is important. And, and again, to Joe's point about it matters who's president. I mean, there was a long time in this country when people didn't think it necessarily mattered. One of the things we learned – 9-11 and post-9-11 is it absolutely matters who's sitting in that chair. And to Joe's point about all the scandals that have happened, I mean, the idea of having this president hobbled by investigation and also the threat of removal from office, that's a dangerous recipe for a superstorm of uh, political proportions that we just – we can't calculate. During Watergate, the House officially began impeachment proceedings on February 6th, 1974, with a House resolution. Impeachment hearings began on May 9th, and Nixon resigned on August 9th. In 1998, official proceedings against President Clinton began with a resolution on September 11th, 1998. The House Judiciary Committee began hearings on October 5th, and the House voted for impeachment on December 19th, 1998. Where are we right now today in that process? Well, I think we're very early in the process because oversight was neglected over two years where Republicans controlled Congress. They just weren't interested in this. They were more interested in Benghazi uh, than the Russians uh, infiltrating our election. And somewhere in history, they'll need to explain that. So we are even before – you know, the special committee on Watergate uh, was set up, where even before the House Judiciary Committee formally took up impeachment proceedings, where we are many, many months of fact gathering and having um, members of Congress and by extension, the public understanding uh, what went on here. So realistically, you know, even, if, you know, even if a semi-automatic smoking gun is found, we're we're not i don't i can't imagine anything happening on this until the fall so do you think that maybe mikey and vanda high jumped the gun just a bit calling this the biggest political scandal in american history no or? you know i think actually um what the 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 power and significance of their story is they're right in saying that and we don't know how big it is yet we're not going to get to the point where people say Oh, that was a whole lot of nothing. I mean, I was expecting more. We know enough already, you know, with uh, the president obstructing justice by firing Comey, by pressuring and then firing the attorney general, by pressuring Rod Rosenstein uh, on the firing Comey on multiple issues. We know through his public statements that he's obstructed justice uh, by – going after Mueller personally and going after the prosecutors uh, and labeling them 
you know, Democrats, thugs, and the number changes, know. but they're, they're all yes. angry Democrats. Yes, they're all they're all angry Democrats. And I, you know, I worked in Washington for thirty five years. I haven't met any of them, and I thought I knew every angry Democrat because I'm a charter member of that club. <laughs> uh, but we, we we know a hell of a lot about what the president has done and how he's abused his power. But we don't know all of it. Uh, And, you know, I think, as I said before, Nadler is smart to say, you know what? I just got this gavel. Let's go back to the beginning and let's start methodically putting the case out there. And at the end of that, the Democratic leadership in the House will decide, you know, do we have enough? Is it right to go forward with impeachment? Is there an imperative to impeach? Or are we close enough to Election Day to let the voters decide? So I want to talk about that, actually, the Democratic House, now that we have a House divided, so to speak, and perhaps talk about the fact that the House of Representatives and and the Democratic majority in and of itself may be a House divided after recent days. All of this is obviously taking place against the backdrop of turmoil in Speaker Nancy Pelosi's House. Last week, a fight within the Democratic caucus over comments made by Congresswoman Ilan Omar of Minnesota, one of three Muslim members of Congress, on the political influence of Israel and the pro-Israel lobby in Washington, took center stage. And according to The New York Times, the congresswoman's comment that drew all of the criticism was this, quote, I want to talk about the political influence in this country that says it is okay for people to push for allegiance to a foreign country, end quote. What does this controversy say about the unity of the House Democratic Caucus and their ability to fulfill the obligations that you spoke to earlier? The first thing it says is it's a hell of a lot easier to be in the minority, Uh, managing the majority and the power that comes with it is what you want, but the responsibility to once you have the power to hold your caucus together is is very, very difficult. It it may strike you as odd, but I'm actually encouraged looking back at the week uh, and Nancy Pelosi's leadership. Uh, and And here's why, because everything is comparative in life. Paul Ryan and John Boehner had the Freedom Caucus tied them in knots. They got none of what they wanted done, uh, spare a very few things because of the orthodoxy of the Freedom Caucus and the basic batshit craziness of people like Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan. I think this was a, a case where there's a fault line in the in Democrats. It's a really interesting political issue to look at. And Pelosi found a way to do a couple of things. One, get the caucus behind a resolution. Not No one was 100 percent happy with it, but they all voted for it. And two, just as a little kicker extra, get 22 Republicans to vote against bigotry, you know, a condemnation uh, of bigotry, um, you know, which is crazy. On the specific issue, you know, the – the influence of uh, APAC, the so-called Jewish lobby, is is on the table. There's there's no taboo that says you can't discuss it. You know they are very tied closely to the Israeli government, and they often advocate uh, almost all the times advocate what the Israeli government wants, and that's okay. There's there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. That doesn't make them. You know, un-American that they agree with what uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu wants to do. On the other hand, raising questions about it is also not un-American. You know, there 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 are two sides to this dispute. There's the Palestinians. There's the Israelis. 
And unfortunately, in our political environment right now, people look to pounce upon a statement. I will I will say uh, with respect to uh, Representative Omar, I don't know what's in her heart. Uh, I do know that her statements are important as far as our policy. I also know that her statements are sloppy enough to open herself up and appear to be insensitive. When that happens, we should have the debate. And that's what happened. Um, so, you know, anyone looking at this as like the Democrats are falling apart. Well, guess what? We, we had a little family squabble and we settled it. Uh, and we settled it in a way where not only was the insensitivity of her statement highlighted, there's nobody in the world who, is, who watches this, whoever does watch this you know, kind of debate, that thinks that she got off scot-free. There's no one. I mean, she's been uh, – this, this was a reprimand even though her name wasn't in there. But what the Democrats did was to say, hold on a second. There's a bigger issue here. I mean, for God's sake, we have someone in the White House who, after neo-Nazis marched in Charlottesville saying, kill all Jews, said there are fine people on both sides. That, you know, on the insensitive scale, on the anti-Semitic scale, on the racial bigotry scale, that's off the charts. He's never acknowledged that what he said he was wrong. In fact, when he was asked about it, he doubled down on it and made it worse. So broadening this out to bigotry has no place in our country was, you know, it's the right combination because it was the right thing to do and it was a smart political thing. No, I, I agree. I said I think, look, this weekend, as Joe stated, was a testament to the leadership of Nancy Pelosi. Like Joe, I grew up in democratic politics. I grew up in New York in democratic politics. I personally did not feel that what Congresswoman Omar said was at all – offensive in any way. I actually thought that some of the reaction, particularly of some of the members on the Democratic side, was an overreaction given exactly to what Joe just pointed out of the other instances of – one of the comments was vile anti-Semitic comments. There have been a lot of those. I, I didn't consider that one. But I, as Joe said, this was something that is a fault line in the Democratic Party, has been a fault line probably about for 15 or 20 years that people don't talk about. I've often said that if Adam Levine says that the Israeli lobby is aggressive and heavy-handed, that I'm enlightened. But if Congresswoman, somebody like Congresswoman Omar says it, they're automatically anti-Semitic. And so, again, the fact that Nancy Pelosi was able to put together a resolution, and I'm of the mind that if you look at the 54 people who have served as Speaker of the House of Representatives in the length and breadth of this republic, Nancy Pelosi will go down, if not the absolute greatest, in, in the top two or three of speakers. And this week was an example of why. You had a caucus that went into the week divided, fighting on the Sunday shows, fighting in the papers. And by the end of the week, she's able to get a resolution that gets every single one of her members to vote for it. And at the same time, on the Republican side, as Joe pointed out, you had 22, 23 people who voted against condemning bigotry. Right. I, I want to ask about that, actually. Can I, can I just add one thing, though, which is the highest concentration of Jewish voters in any congressional district of the 435s is Jerry Nadler's uh, here in New York. He brokered the deal here. So I think there is a risk for others. And I listen, I thought Ted Deutsch's speech on the floor was very compelling. And I believe that um, that came from his heart. 
uh, and he was speaking for his dad, and I commend him for making that speech. So I want to put that aside. But if others um, in the Democratic caucus, after they've worked this out and talked about it as a caucus and done the resolution, continue to press that, then I do think they're open to uh, the criticism that they're all they're, that they're serving APACs, a lobby's agenda rather than their constituents' agenda. So we'll see where it goes. And it's a way for some of them to get noticed. I mean, some of them, you know, stand in the aisle for a State of the Union address and get noticed that way. Others take shots in the manner that we're taking this week. Right. So you both referenced the Republicans who voted against condemning all hateful expressions of intolerance. All of the 23 no votes were Republicans on that uh, resolution. What does that say about the unity of their caucus? Look, that is a caucus that, as Joe pointed out, for the last two Republican speakers, leaders of of that caucus that have been deeply divided. You have some 80 or so members of the so-called Freedom Caucus. You have – again, I look at those 23 and if you look at the names and if you look at the track records, that is a who's who of dog whistlers and those who have encouraged and stoked hatred and uh, all of those things for the last two, three – 10 years. And so that that caucus, those fault lines are not going away. And they couldn't even, you know, uh, decide that anti-bigotry is something that they all agreed with. I mean, this is the, the this is the road we shouldn't go down, you know, but when one side points a finger, inevitably the other finger is going to point back. And the Republicans don't have a leg to stand on here. They have, as a party, demonized George Soros as uh, some sort of anti-American uh, uh, figure trying to undermine the American system, and we all know why because he's Jewish. You had you know Louis Gohmert, who might be the dumbest member of Congress, um, uh, saying that he was a Nazi sympathizer who helped the Nazis during World War II. He was a child. You had Matt uh, Gates uh, from Florida, who might be the dumbest member of Congress, um, who brought a Holocaust denier to the State of the Union. You had Kevin McCarthy, uh, the the um, uh, minority leader, send out a tweet about uh, Tom Steyer, also an American Jew, with a dollar sign instead of the S. So these are all, you know, in political terms, things that can be turned into something that maybe they are, maybe they're not. And I, I would just suggest that the old adage of glass houses and throwing rocks, everybody should think about here. Thank you both for joining us this week. It's an important conversation. This is a long process. We've got a lot of ways to go. Today we talked about where we are and a little bit about where we're going, and I'm sure there's more to come. And now, Katie's final word. The month of March is International Women's History Month, and we recently celebrated International Women's Day. We just ended Black History Month in February, and in honor of both, I'd like to highlight some outstanding women throughout this month as my final word. Charlene Hunter-Galt is an Emmy Award-winning investigative journalist and has also picked up two Peabody Awards along the way. But before any of that, she was the first black woman to attend the University of Georgia in the segregated South in 1961. She was initially denied entry to the University of Georgia, but with some help from NAACP lawyer Constance Baker Motley, who, by the way, later became 
the first African-American woman appointed to the federal judiciary when she took the bench in the Southern District of New York in 1966. With Judge Motley's help, Charlene Hunter-Galt got into the University of Georgia and graduated with a degree in journalism in 1963. She went on to work for the New York Times, the News Hour with Jim Lehrer, and worked as NPR's chief correspondent in Africa for many years. She's also an author. She wrote In My Place, a memoir about her experiences at the University of Georgia. Charlene Hunter-Galt is a pioneer and paved the way for many women in journalism and education. And I want you to know her story. I'll continue to talk about the stories like Charlene Hunter-Galt's, and I have plenty in mind. But please feel free to send any you have my way. I know there are more stories of amazing pioneering women than I have time to tell. I'll be here each week this month trying my best to tell them. So this week, we'll be giving Charlene Hunter-Galt the final word. The notion that I was a queen remained in my head and in my heart and in my soul. So all those years later, as I walked through these mobs shouting the N-word at me, I was looking around for who they were talking about because I knew it wasn't me because I was what? You got that? (laughs) That is what I call mental armor. Now, the other layers of armor were created by the history that was taught in our homes, in our schools, and in our churches a history that included women like Phyllis Wheatley, a woman who found a beautiful, poetic voice despite her not-so-beautiful status as a slave. And no, Kanye, that was not a choice of hers. (laughs) Not for her or for Harriet Tubman. (laughs) Well, you know, you know, well, never mind. Anyway, it wasn't a choice for Phyllis Wheatley, and it wasn't a choice for Harriet Tubman, who led so many of her people to freedom at great risk to herself. Or Ida B. Wells, a crusading journalist not unlike Ellen Browning Scripps. Wells campaigned against the lynching of black women in the late 1800s, and her words, like Esther's, are as relevant today as then. For she said... The way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth on them. To me, that's the mission of servants of the people, telling the truth with integrity. Words Matter will be back here next week, and we hope you will be too. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.